Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we are all star stuff. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on WPRR Ada Grand Rapids and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, or you can listen streaming 24-7 at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. X. I mean, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I'm going to change it legally. Are you? That's good. Uh, happy belated Carl Sagan Day, by the yeah, way, to th- everyone. Thank you. To you and to our listeners. We didn't get to talk about it much this year, but... Uh, I got to go to the observatory. Did you really? Or the observatory. And how was that? Uh, it was fun. I got to see uh, – I've never seen Jupiter through a big telescope before. It was cool. Got to see all the different um, – you could see the lines uh, in Jupiter's atmosphere. Wow. You could see their, the moons. The moons seemed incredibly distant from the planet. Mm. I thought that was neat. Um, but, yeah, I'd never done that before. It was it was really cool for me. Wow, very cool. And I also recommend for those of you who, who want some uh, Carl Sagan fun, go to episode 11 of this show – Bizarro World and listen to Logos, which is still one of the finest Carl Sagan impressions slash parodies of all time. Oh, thank you. Uh, in this episode, we'll talk some mythology. We've got counter apologetics, uh, God Thinks Like You. But first off, we had some elections here in the States uh, just recently. Yeah, I can tell by how happy and shiny <laughs> you all are about how well that went. It, it, To be fair, it went pretty much exactly as one would expect. But good news, good news. We do not have to get used to the phrase Senator Christine O'Donnell. I'm not a witch. And she's not a senator. And she's still unemployed, which is like 15 years running now. So another bit of good news, and this comes out of Colorado, where usually on the show we don't have good news from Colorado. Uh, Colorado is the home seat of uh, Focus on the Family, right? James Dobson's... Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. Not Boulder. Right, right. In Colorado, they had a proposed constitutional amendment, uh, Amendment 62, that would change the definition of personhood. This is the kind of thing we've seen before, including two years ago in Colorado. The section of the proposal in question, it said... The term person shall apply to every human being from the beginning of the biological development of that human being. (laughs) Obviously, this is an attempt to make abortion illegal and stem cell research and uh, also some forms of birth control. Because if you're defining as the many forms of birth, many forms, anything that that uh, prevents implantation. Yeah, would be condoms would be okay because the sperm and egg don't meet. But if they're fertilized, it's considered life then, according to that personhood amendment. Exactly. And and it would also, if we were to be consistent, it would give us a moral obligation to make sure that we prevent all the natural abortions. The majority of all conceptions, in other words, would be right. Exactly. This is going to be a new public health concern, (laughs) or should be if people are being consistent. Right. And this is a this is a change from the 2008 proposed amendment, which read that uh, a person would be defined as quote any human being from the moment of fertilization. They changed it to every human being from the beginning of biological development of that human being, which then to quote one of the heads of the Colorado Personhood Group, who was one of the key backers of this bill. That would include then fertilization would not have properly applied to asexually reproduced humans, but even asexually reproduced humans 
human beings have a definitive biological beginning. So cloning and um, test tube babies and that sort of thing. So this definition. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's inclusive of test tube babies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, really, this is really <laughs> far reaching. And in 2008, it was defeated something like 73% voted no. And 2010, they made some headway. Only 70% of voters said no. It was 70 to 30. So this was a, that seems a like the, massive creaming. There would be a t- there would be ripe for parodies in that state. Like if if it was on the ballot again, you could run commercials about like police knocking down the doors of women's houses. Like you know, we're here to find that person. What person? The one you spontaneously aborted. I didn't even know I was pregnant. Yeah, well you should have known, huh? Oh, take oh, her away, boys. You want a funny campaign ad? Check this out. This is a real campaign ad that Personhood Colorado ran in favor of the amendment in which a fictitious slave named George Stevens says, quote, I fought so all slaves would be recognized as persons, not property, and we won. But today in Colorado, there are still people called property, children, just like I was. And that America you thought you wouldn't recognize is all around you, and these children are being killed. I fought so all slaves would be recognized as persons, not property, and we won. Vote yes on Proposal 62. Well, that's in bad taste. <laughs> Isn't it, though? I, I would think an ad like that would be counterproductive. Very well may have been because they lost big time here. It's no wonder that the personhood amendment failed, right? Because this midterm election didn't have anything to do with religion. Right. Didn't have anything to do with the religious right because this was a victory for the Tea Party. Which, as we know, they're all just libertarians. They're all just fiscal conservatives, right? Of course. None of them are social conservatives. Of course. Well, if you talk to the Christian right, though, they see actually the the Tea Party as sharing their values. Right. And according to PBS Religion and Ethics Weekly, conservative evangelicals make up about half of the Tea Party movement. I'm surprised it's so low, actually. Well, they um, actually that one of the th- reasons they're downplaying the social issues is if they would talk about abortion and gay marriage and things like that, that are clearly not libertarian issues because right. they imply the government should do something about your personal, you know, sexual behavior. That would splinter the coalition yeah, exactly. of the business, true libertarian and Randy types with these religious social conservative types. You know, there and you even hear interviews. Well, they'll have tea partiers come on, and then somebody will ask indelicate questions about social issues, mm-hmm. and they'll start fighting with each other. You know, and then one of them will have to say, "Well, we'll just downplay the social issues for now because we, you know, essentially we're a big tent, but that yeah. can't hold up." It's always been a tension in the Republican or conservative movement. Mm-hmm. I want to make money and have you know profits, and let's not talk about social issues, right. or you know, government should basically help me rake in bucks. Versus people who think that it should legislate morality. There's a tension between those. But that doesn't mean that behind the scenes that a lot of these self-styled libertarian candidates aren't seeking the support of religious right voters. Uh, For example, probably one of the most libertarian there, Rand Paul. Yes. uh, One of the few people that thinks cutting government spending should should involve the military. Right. To his credit, although he also doesn't believe in the Civil Rights Act. And, and, and he also again. opposes abortion and, of right. course, courted an endorsement from James Dobson, right. leader of Focus on the Family. Right. Uh, of course, Representative Michelle Bachman, uh, Senator uh, Jim yeah. DeMint. Uh, these guys are leaders in the Tea Party movement, but but they're social conservatives all the way. Right. The National Right to Life Committee was celebrating this uh, this midterm election claiming that 65 seats in Congress had switched from pro-choice to pro-life. We saw voters in Iowa uh, recalled three state Supreme Court justices who had ruled in favor of same-sex marriage. Mm. This was a victory for the religious right. Absolutely. They're still there. They're not in the public limelight as much as they were in previous elections, but uh, the religious right is regrouping, and they're still having a powerful influence on politics Uh, especially Republican politics. One of the more interesting stories to come out of this midterm election for me, I found on Right Wing Watch, Mm -hmm. which is a blog uh, from the uh, organization People for the American Way. So it's uh, definitely a left-leaning blog. Right, right. But Right Wing Watch reported that two days after the election, 
Newt Gingrich, David Barton, and Jim Garlow held a conference call for conservative Christian pastors around the country for them to discuss the victory, what Mm -hmm. it means, and what their strategies for moving forward should be. Right. Uh, Now, I'm guessing everybody knows who Newt Gingrich is. He needs no introduction. David Barton, if you're not familiar with him, he's this pseudo-historian. Did we talk about him on the show before? Yeah, our episode um, Liars for Jesus with Chris Rada Uh, uh, talked a lot about Barton. He's the guy who's been peddling all these fake uh, founding fathers quotes that they're just fraudulent. They're just pulled out of thin air. Mm -hmm. People who are familiar with Glenn Beck knows that he's been bringing David Barton on all the time. Mm. He's, of course, like many on the religious right. An American exceptionalist. He believes that we are a city on the hill. We're special. That's uh, God has divinely inspired the founding of our nation so that we can deliver the Christian message throughout the world. We're a special needs nation, in other words. (laughs) We have short buses. Yes. Uh, So that's David Barton. Uh, And in fact, we're we're not going to go into debunking him. But uh, if you're interested in that, Chris Rada, again, is the source to go to. Uh, She even has a YouTube channel where she brings up all of David Barton's stuff with Glenn Beck and goes through and refutes them point by point and does an excellent job. Nice. But that requires having to watch Glenn Beck. That must be a hard job. I I sure wouldn't want to volunteer for that. But I'm glad somebody's doing it so we don't have to. Exactly. Jim Garlow. Now, this is the interesting guy. This is why I'm bringing this up. Jim mm-hmm. Garlow, he's a he's a pastor. He's a radio show host. He's an author. Politically, if, if he's on people's radar at all, it's for really getting behind Proposition 8 in California. The anti-gay marriage proposal. Yeah. yeah. And Jim Garlow is a dominionist in his theology. Like he went to Old Dominion College or – Dominion in the sense that he believes Christians need to come to have dominion over all spheres of uh, politics and culture. Uh, And they need to have dominion because they believe that Jesus will not return until Christians Christians establish dominion over the world. Hmm. My reading of Revelation is a bit different than that, but okay. <laughs> He's the pastor. The angels. So are we going to smite now and have Armageddon? And God will say, wait, 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 hold off. I want them to do a few things first before I come down. They're circling the wagons. Yeah, these guys are end timers. He's a special – he's a, he's part of this uh, interesting, this new twist in dominionist theology. Uh, they, they call themselves the Seven Mountains Dominionist Theology. And I'll get into what that Seven Mountains means yeah. in just a moment. But they are end times. They're an end times group. They believe that we are rapidly approaching the end of the world, that they're receiving prophecies, and that God has destined this time for a Christian takeover Mm -hmm. of the planet. Mm -hmm. As far as end times is concerned, they're a little bit different from what we're used to. We're used to these pre-millennialist end timers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pre-millennialist meaning that before God comes to establish his kingdom, there's going to be this terrible time called the tribulation. But preceding that, all the good Christians are going to be raptured out. So they won't have to go through this uh, nasty seven-year period of torment here on Earth. The left behind approach. Right, left behind. Of course, they're dangerous, right, because uh, as we've seen politically, they tend to have unconditional support for Israel. They tend to Mm. be pretty pro-war. They turn a blind eye to nuclear proliferation because, hey, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. And so to use Sam Harris's words, they're the type of people that would see a a silver lining in a mushroom cloud. (laughs) But generally, the pre-millennialists aren't really interested in in politics. Historically, these people, they, they view, hey, look, The world's just going to get worse anyways. There's no stopping it. God's going to come and fix everything. So they're not all that concerned. But these seven mountains people, they, on the other hand, believe that Jesus will not return until Christians have established dominion over the earth. And so I want to read for you a a portion of what this seven mountains prophecy is all about by uh, Johnny N. Lowe, author of Seven Mountains Prophecy. He talks about the Elijah Revolution. They, they get their term for seven mountains from a verse in Isaiah, mm-hmm. Isaiah 2.2. Now, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Here's from Seven Mountains Prophecy by Johnny Enloe. The coming Elijah Revolution will affect the entire world and will prepare the way of the Lord before his return. According to scripture, Jesus will sit at God's right hand until... All of his enemies are put under his feet. 
the Elijah revolution will accomplish this as God's end-time emissaries confront the seven nations, greater and mightier than we. That is, from the Bible, the Hittites, the Girgash... I can't ever say that one. The Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These nations correspond to the seven mountains of global society, that being media, government, education, economy, religion, arts, and family. What? Clearly, that We're, follows. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, Absolutely. I, yeah. The Amorites I can are trace media. That. Yeah, As a Hittite, definitely. which is my uh, sphere of influence? <laughs> I think you're a, you're a Canaanite. Yeah. <laughs> With divine power and favor, revolutionaries will take these mountains for Christ. How did this all begin? He says, in 1975, Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, and oh, Lauren Cunningham, founder of Youth with a Mission, had lunch together in Colorado. God simultaneously gave each of these change agents – he calls them change agents. Right, right. These are the revolutionaries in the Seven Mountains prophecy. He gave these change agents a message to give to the other. That message was that if we were going to impact any nation for Jesus Christ, then we would have to affect the seven spheres or the mountains of society that are pillars of any society. About a month later, the Lord showed Francis Schaeffer the same thing. In essence, God was telling these three change agents where the battlefield was. It was here where culture would be won or lost. Their assignment was to raise up change agents to scale the mountains and to help a new generation of change agents understand the larger story. And then they go into a strategy for doing this, which is basically uh, locating leaders that are in each of these areas of culture that are mm. cri hardcore Christian conservatives, developing support networks around them, lobbying and all these other things. Basically, they want Christian ideas to permeate and control every aspect of American culture and politics. Boy, what would that be like? They sound they sound similar to the Reconstructionists who we've talked about, hmm. but they're a little bit different. The Reconstructionists are advocating that Old Testament law be actually implemented into our government. They're really anti-democracy and pro-theocracy, whereas these guys are a little softer. They're, they're not, for example, advocating that we should start executing uh, adulterers and – but and homosexuals, homosexuals on oh, a large scale. Oh, yeah. They just want to see a dominant cultural influence. Right. Uh, but some of these people like Janet Porter, she's a Seven Mountains Dominionist. She's spoken uh, and attended and supported conventions put on by hardcore Christian Reconstructionists like Gary DeMar and, and Gary North. So uh, there are clearly ties there. Now, what's interesting about these people because they sound like some lunatic fringe and they certainly are. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is this guy that I've been talking about, Jim Garlow, is now the chairman of Newt Gingrich's latest political organization, Renewing American Leadership. In fact, another Seven Mountains Dominionist, Lou Angle, who people are probably familiar with from Jesus Camp, he's the he was the bald guy who's, with the tape on the mouth. Yeah, the yeah. anti-abortion yeah. uh, activist. He he liked to raise up righteous judges, yeah. righteous judges, righteous yeah. judges. Yeah. One of the more Chilean passages. He had the he had the you know those the models of embryonic development. Yes. Of course, every little stage, even the tiniest one, they all looked like completely human. Yeah. <laughs> I'll curl up into a little ball. Yeah. A we, we don't want the kids seeing, you know, a Gil fetus slits. with a tail. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not going to go over well. But he's he's a member of this theological movement and uh, he laid hands on Gingrich at a convention. Um, As in to cast the demons out? In a friendly way? No, or? no, to give him a blessing, to oh. empower him with godly power and to uh, give him a shield of protection. Or a, I, I think they <laughs> more, more often call it a hedge of protection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. Why is he putting all these, these hardcore dominionists yeah. at the front of his organization, actually running <laughs> a which, lot of the day-to-day -day affairs of his, of his political organization? Yeah. Well, the Washington Post reports that Gingrich has been dropping hints 
that he's going to announce soon that he'll be running for president in 2012. Great. Good luck with that. Yeah. So he's uh, hey, seeking out support. Best thing that could happen the to the Democrats right. is Newt Gingrich and Sarah Palin running for president in uh, 2012. <laughs> we'll finally bring back morality to this country. We can ask him, for example, about how he divorced his second wife on when she was on her deathbed, when dying, she was of, dying cancer, of cancer. With, yeah. Well, yeah. He's having an affair with somebody else. Yeah. yeah. His current third wife. Now, I think the author at Right Wing Watch is a little more alarmist about this than he should be. He's he's claiming that all of the religious right is in bed with these dominionists. Yeah, and which doesn't seem that's to be the case. Not the no, case. No, no. These these guys are still relatively fringe. But what is interesting is all the alliances that are forming between dominionist groups and far more mainstream Christians on the right. Uh, for example, Lou Ingalls group Pray and Act, several of the people who joined that group was Chuck Colson, hmm. we know who he is, Prison Fellowship Ministry. Right. From Watergate. Vonette Bright from Campus Crusade for Christ, Jim Daly, uh, President and CEO of Focus on the Family, hmm. uh, Maggie Gallagher, National Organization for Marriage, Professor Robert P. George hey. from Princeton University. Our, our old favorite. One flesh unity. That's right. Mike Huckabee, Penny Nance from Concerned Women for America, Tony Perkins, Family Research Council. These guys are pretty far to the right as it is. Yeah. But in comparison to the Dominionists, you know, they're they're not even close. Right. I think the real threat is that these alliances and these associations are going to push some of these more more radical views into the religious right mainstream. I wouldn't go so far as to say that all of the religious right now is in is in bed with the dominionists for example robert p george he's he's a hardcore catholic right. natural law ethicist he's you know he's not expecting any sort of end time prophecy that that's a real stretch to put him into the dominionist camp just because he's signing up with Lou Angle. If you have tenure purpose. as a professor, you don't want there to be end times because you want to be able to, you know, <laughs> have your job lo- suckling at the teat of, of uh, your university long enough to retire with a good, you know, 401k. And- right. But the point is the religious right is not gone. They're no. still they're still uh, behind the scenes in American politics and they're regrouping for the 2012 campaign. Well, and they're strengthening their foundation of support by reaching out to some pretty radical folks. I yeah. think I've uh, plugged her book before, but of those people who are interested in a good history of this movement, The Kingdom Coming book by Michelle Goldberg, or The Rise of Christian Nationalism, has mm-hmm. all these, you know, uh, it's a very readable look at all these groups like post and premillennialism and Christian Reconstructionism and Dominion theology. She kind of outlays all the things you have to be scared. Don't read it before bed, of course, but. Uh, <laughs> All the reasons why our country is going to hell in a handbasket. I, I kind of liken this dominionist movement within the religious right to the Tea Party within the conservative political party. Not all Republicans are teabaggers, but the presence of the teabaggers has kind of shift everything. They, they drag them over in that direction. Dra- dragging them yeah. to the right, and I, I think, think that's, that's what we're analogy. seeing with the with the Dominionists too. Well, you know, and and this is something that 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 they always talk. All the Tea Parties talk about like democracy and how elitists have, are having disproportionate influence. If you want to think about right. disproportionate influence, though, the country <laughs> yeah. really is set up to be biased towards conservatism and rural type of uh, like an anti-urban structure. You know, I was reading a stat in that book I just mentioned by Michelle Goldberg. People don't, uh, you know, people know in the abstract that we have like two senators per state, right. which was done at the time of the Constitution to, to reassure smaller states they wouldn't be overwhelmed. Exactly. But think about the, the influence of that in regards to rural states like Wyoming, which is what, 500,000, 600,000 yeah. people, having two senators. Well, which is why they have fewer members in the House. Right. So seven, here's the stat. Seven percent of the population, and these are that live in the like the 17 least populous states, they control a third of the Congress. Yeah. In terms of votes. Right. So literally, if you are a member of a, a urban area or a blue state or like on the coast, your vote counts for less, a lot yep. less yeah. than somebody in, you know, Nebraska or or South Dakota. Perhaps it should be based purely on population then? Well, if somebody um. – that's my point. If somebody's Tea Partiers are like, you know, very radical, like one person, one vote, Democratic type right. things instead of elite influence – 
I, let's go for that. Sure. Let's do away with <laughs> it's it. It's going to work out well yeah. for the blue states. Yeah. Let's have one person, one vote in this and without this electoral, electoral bullshit. Electoral college you know, and – yep. And see what happens in regards – that's one of the reasons why these rural state senators have disproportionate influence. You got like – we've talked on the show like Larry Craig from Idaho or right. these guys from – that have anti-environmental type policies because they're – you know, they represent a, a fraction of the people that, say, Barbara Boxer or right. yeah. Charles Schumer would represent. Right, well, right. I'll, I'll play the devil's advocate. I'm not really sure how I feel about this stuff. But uh, I do think there is an argument in the other direction that says you don't want people in a few coastal cities determining policy for everyone else, right? You know, what does somebody in Chicago and L.A. really understand about the needs of, of farmers uh, and right. the needs of, it, you know, there there is something to be said that, and I think that's part we of We don't want the interests of a few regions right. dominating political discourse either. And I think that's part of the genius behind how our government was framed, where we have the Senate, which is based on uh, two senators per state, and then we have the House, which is based on population. So you do get a little bit of the balance there. Everyone has a voice. But the Senate we're, we're is not the thing perfectly holds... represented. It, well, exactly. None of us are. No, and, and we never will be. Yeah. The Senate is what holds things up, though. If you go back to the civil rights yeah, era, well, you true. have a bunch of like senators from Alabama and uh, Mississippi grinding everything to a halt, even though the clear majority of yeah. the population voted for something. No, you're absolutely right. So and if you don't want a region to, to, to influence things, why should the rural regions influence environmental right, policy? Right, because right now I, I, understand the the, yeah. I understand the criticism. I just – I don't know if there's a simple solution to it that doesn't have drawbacks of it. One somewhere. person by, by meaning that each fetus gets a vote, each embryo. <laughs> That's the next Colorado amendment is that yeah. I'm representing my uh, my embryo right now and so each person would have two votes if they are carrying child. Nice, nice. I like that. And the other thing that's scary that finally with the politics thing is that what's going to happen now with the census data is redistricting. Now that we have right. – this is a census year, so all – get ready for a bunch yeah. of voting districts that look like, you know, crazy serpents winding around yeah. uh, with, you know, four feet wide and everything because what the Republicans are going to do is try to instantiate their advantage right now yep. into the future by making sure that they uh, have districts that are in their advantage. That so. is a good yep. point. Yep, Definitely. Speaking of good points, I think this would be a good point to do some God Thinks Like You. One of the things that's interesting about the Christian evangelical movement is this attempt to really set up parallel uh, societies, to vertically integrate it, to put it in corporate terms, mm. from essentially cradle to grave in terms of like your education, your uh, your family, where you don't really have to encounter outside ideas. I mean, many people have decried like the influence of Fox News where you can get your own news or log into right. the internet websites that just give things your way. You can, you know, read Conservapedia or just read things that are your own view. Well, we can be very selective in, in the news we get now. Sure. So you're yeah. saying cultural dominion starts at home? Yes. <laughs> well, I think as, as a product of a parochial religious school system, I know the power of living in a community where everybody you know goes to the same church, goes to the same school, before I went to college, I never encountered a black person, right. a Jewish person, Amen, brother. an atheist, certainly not yep. an atheist. So, no. and and, uh, and I think that Christians realize this. Evangelicals realize that really education is a contaminating influence, and, and they view well, that as a bad thing. That if you have a truly liberal arts education where you're encountering different ideas and having to compare that, it actually is, has a corrosive influence. Right. Just a, a while back, I forget who it was, but it was a, um, a conservative commentator decrying the fact that as people get more educated, they become more liberal. And and the statistics bear that out. But here's the thing. You can get an education without becoming more liberal if you can control the type of education that you get. Exactly. And this is where we get to this pipeline that evangelicals send their kids in that includes homeschooling and then – up into Christian high schools and Christian college. private schools. Yeah, and so the Christian colleges. The uh, there's a lot of this came out in the Bush administration because a lot of the interns that that are sort of the young people that work uh, part time for the White House or Congress. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of commentators in the media were noticing, you know, boy, these kids all seem to come from disproportionately uh, narrow. Christian colleges like Liberty University, uh, this well, Bush's thing, legal and, team, I believe, Regents came University, largely from Liberty University, too. or uh, Patrick Henry College. Right. I think the 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 um, the stat that floored me was that Patrick Henry College, which has only existed for for ten years, oh really, and and takes like maybe a, a hundred or so, a few hundred people per year, so it's not a large school. 
they consist they they provided seven percent of White House interns. Wow. And twenty two conservative congressmen have employed one or more of Patrick Henry interns, and they worked on high levels of staff. Jeez. So and and you know internships again are viewed as uh, as a training ground or, right. or for people who want to go into government or the legal system. Talk about disproportionate influence. Though. Yeah. I mean – there. I, I, when I was looking more into this – and again, part of this comes from Michelle Goldberg's book, uh, Kingdom Coming. Mm-hmm. She uh, spent a lot of time in megachurches and, and uh, at these schools. They have a term for this. It's called Generation Joshua. Yes. Hmm. And Generation Joshua, you can go to their website. Uh, uh, that they have a, if you look at their mission statement, basically they they call this raising up the next generation of Christian leaders and citizens. Uh, you know, rather than voting or having grassroots support, they want the leaders to be plucked from a generation of youth who have been raised all the way through churches, homeschooling, mm-hmm. uh, or Christian schools into Christian universities, and then straight into government. And, and so the, a lot of these people could go their entire you know, life, uh, basically their adult and adolescent life, without encountering a non-Christian, right. truly liberal arts, broad-based education. Mm-hmm. Until they're right in the midst of politics and a culture war and yep. where it's going to be awfully hard to shake free and think critically then because you're, you're committed. Yeah, in fact, uh, to a position uh, by so places like Patrick Henry College explicitly state they are an uh, outlet for homeschooling kids. They have right on their website, if you mm-hmm. want to go, like the uh, Homeschool Legal Defense Association is the one that always uh, defends, like, you know, parents' rights to do basically whatever they want, teaching their kids all kinds of crap. Right. And, and Patrick Henry makes explicit that they welcome and, and have programs so that homeschoolers can be sent directly to their college. Parents have a right to, you know, educate their kids as they see fit. But if you want a healthy... A democracy with intellectual development. Uh, I think the troubling thing about this is the limitations that that has in their, you know, in their intellectual exploration. Right. That, as we know, uh, you know, and a lot of research in psychology shows that your moral reasoning is actually of higher quality when you have to have different have ideas to reason, fight, as fight opposed to just regurgitate. Yeah, rather yeah. than saying uh, something is is true, or right or wrong because it says so in the Bible or because my right. parents taught me this, that the quality it, it retards your your intellectual and moral growth rather than to say. Confronted with, you know, why is it uh, that that this right. this rule is right and this rule is is wrong? You know, what basis is there for that? Also, some social psych studies, like Christine Smith's, one of your coworkers, have shown that in the presence of no dissenting opinions, people will become much more radical, much more extreme. Yeah, group in, yep. in the degree to which they hold their views, while introducing just a few dissenting viewpoints, can have a major difference. But how often are they going to be exposed to dissenting viewpoints? Right. Yeah, they even had a thing at Liberty. I think it's at Liberty University where they have, of course, a campus Republican group, but the the campus Democratic group got shut down. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe it was Liberty. That was yeah, this past and, year. And, uh, and and you know, these kids were obviously then then urged to go out and vote uh, the policy. So in many of these cases, there's which a probably very... included academic freedom rhetoric. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, many. If you look at too, there's like statements there about that you have to sign as professors at these places that you're not going to dissent. And so it's fine if people have conservative professors, liberal professors. I really don't care. Right, but right. to start it off from the get-go that you cannot deviate from these points. You have to is, be this way. Yeah. Is, defeats the entire point of, uh, of an education. Yeah. Yeah, and many of the parents I've talked about before on the, on the show, like when we've done like developmental-type psychology issues, evangelical conservative parents are known for valuing obedience above all. Of course. Rather than necessarily intellectual autonomy right. or the kid's mm-hmm. adjustment, what they value is what seems to concern them most is keep their children will keep their same ideals. Right. And so what, what what seems primarily important to Christian homeschoolers is that they learn a certain set of core principles and they don't deviate from mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. My wife was homeschooled. Uh, up was in, she really? Up in, yeah, up that. until high school. Hmm. Wow. She was, uh, was homeschooled. Uh, no, we met in church. Oh, well, there you go. She ended up going to a Christian high school as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the homeschoolers wearing these T-shirts and, uh, you know, handing out brochures in church, promoting their very high levels of achievement in mm-hmm. comparison to the public schools. I guess I just kind of internalized some of that, didn't think critically about it and thought – for a long time that, yeah, maybe homeschool on on average, maybe the public schools are so bad that the homeschoolers are in some cases providing a better education. Mm. But I was shocked by this study that you sent us, Luke. What have we learned about homeschooling from the Peabody Journal of Education to find out that we really don't have almost any data whatsoever on 
homeschool performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on, they, on virtually right. anything about homeschoolers, it's like this big black it's hole black of knowledge. Hole, right? We just don't know. Yeah, so they they phrase it in very. I was shocked by their, you know, the, the, they said there are at least one million children in homeschooling, and many more who have been homeschooled for at least part of their education. Right. You can't be more specific. I mean, you know, they're very sort of. We don't know what's going on out there, uh, in in terms of numbers. But for for like the performance issue of like they point to like how high performing the kids are, like you just mentioned, in like any type of program evaluation, what you want to know is well, what are the input values? That is, is right. it the schooling itself right. that's producing this? High performance, or is it simply that parents who are more invested in their kids' education right. or intelligent and you know themselves are the ones who tend to homeschool? Mm-hmm. That is, you can imagine that many parents who don't really give a rip about education or who aren't particularly educated themselves might just say might default into I don't know, send them to public school, uh, exactly something I don't have to do. Whereas the ones that are likely to you know be like Ned right. Flanders and, and care about that sort of thing, those are you know. So is it the the homeschooling itself? isn't been proven to to produce this this right. high performance it's just right. the and a lot of selection. the stats that the homeschooling groups will use are not good stats so for example oftentimes they'll they'll try to say uh, that homeschoolers have a competitive advantage on SAT scores hmm. but as this journal article was pointing out the data that's collected from SAT scores uh, when they when they record hey I'm a homeschooler on it that's a self-selected group sure. homeschoolers hmm. aren't required to take SAT right. tests oh, good point. Uh, in in a majority of states. In fact, I don't know if they're required in any, but um, but it, it's a self-selected group. So we don't really have the real yeah. rate of performance yeah, for, I mean, for these students. We have just the ones that chose for some reason to go out and take that test. And so it, probably it's not because really Probably because they want to go to measure. a college, which probably means they're continuing their education right. as opposed to the ones who aren't and maybe didn't get that good of an education at home. And uh, and similarly, I mean, this guy, Eric Eisenberg, writing for the Peabody Journal of Education, I mean, he just goes through the list of these different statistical measures of, of homeschooling, like the different sources of data where we get them. And just one by one by one, there's major flaws in, in all of them. And, you know, you got to wonder, how did, how did we get in this situation where close to a million people are homeschooled and we have no idea uh, what it's doing to them. And it was actually, this was deliberate. Back in the 80s, uh, people who were pushing for the homeschooling movement, fearing that there would be regulations imposed on them if, if public data was collected, made sure that data couldn't be collected. They lobbied that there wouldn't be any government oversight of how this is done. Yeah, I mean, this is part of that. We've talked before in the show about things like the extreme emphasis and local control in this country when it comes to things like creation, you know, school boards and creationism and evolution and sex ed. Local control is is viewed as being a cornerstone because you don't want big government telling you what your curriculum is. Well, this is that taken again up to another notch where you don't want, you know, there's a history in this country if you don't want the government to set out here's criteria for what the kids need to know. Mm-hmm. If you want to homeschool them, fine, but they have to meet these these guidelines. You know, when Europeans look at our system. They, they just can't believe it. I've talked to some people from you know different countries, and like, you mean that you can just homeschool your kid and just pick and choose from your yeah. curriculum and do whatever you want? Yep. It, it even yep. spills over into education issues for the public schools because, if right. for example, if if the education advocates are saying we need to require that every teacher here has a degree in their content area, they'll mobilize the homeschooling groups to fight against that because. There's only 10 states that require that that parents have a high school diploma or even a GED in order to teach. There's only 10 states in America that require that. Uh, They want to make sure that there's no blowback towards them yeah. if uh, public school systems adopt stricter policies yeah. about who who can teach it. If you want to see what, how that goes, you should, again, refer back to Jesus Camp where little Levi is learning science from his mom. Oh, and, God, yeah. when the, and so yeah. the global warming it only raises the temperature like a degree centigrade. That's not a lot, is it? No, that doesn't seem <laughs> yeah, like a lot. One degree? No. That doesn't, that doesn't make any difference. I think another area, too, where this this obsession with keeping their Christian children isolated actually spills over and harms public education as well is uh, with the vouchers issue. 
So vouchers are clearly important to the religious right because then they can get a backdoor funding for private schools from with public yes. money. That is, you say, it right. makes it seem like it's very democratic again, saying, oh, parents can choose. But yeah, if that's a parent the, chooses to send take the public money, they can send their kid to a religious school exactly. or whatever with that public money. Yeah, and, and that's the key point. This isn't about school choice. Right. This is about getting their children into religious schools. Unfortunately, in 2002... The Supreme Court upheld the right of a program in Cleveland, Ohio uh, to give tax funding to religious schools. So this cleared the way at the federal level for voucher programs, but it didn't mandate that voucher programs be implemented. Just uh, it just could. allowed that yeah. the states could pass these laws if they wanted to. Yeah. A few years after that in, in, the Cle- in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, 98 percent of the schools were religious schools. Uh, wow. That received vouchers. It was almost entirely religious people who were seeking out these schools. And um, just in general, only 21% of private schools are secular. 32 are Catholic. 47% are some other religious denomination. Mm-hmm. And that, that accounts overall for 11% of the students nationwide are, are in these schools. So that's a large chunk of students who are in religious okay. schools. And those, those schools... That data is a little bit old. That's from 1999. Right. I couldn't find anything more up to date. But wow. Uh, that but percentage wow. of, the school, of private <clears throat> schools that are secular, does that include – that's including charter schools? Because a lot of those will, yeah, that's are, a good are, point. are faux secular. They They very much have a – religious agenda, even if it doesn't say Jesus on the door. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's impossible to quantify, right, but but right. certainly a- anecdotally, that seems to be the case. I, I, I myself volunteered as a teacher's assistant for Heritage Academies here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that what the Heritage for Foundation? For several months. <laughs> and they were secular on the surface, but right. uh, inside there was religious stuff all over the walls. Uh, one of the, the teachers I was working for was a history teacher she was using Bob Jones University oh history God. textbooks to design her curriculum. Wow. Well, they're easy uh, to read. And she could and tell nice me pictures. because I was safe because I was going to Cornerstone oh. University at the time and I was safe. So she could sit down and tell me, yes, it, it's a secular school, but it's it's a very Christian environment that we've set up here for the students. She would have never ever told me She would have never told me this if she would have known what I really thought about things. Right, right. But of course, I egged her out and I wanted to know more about it. And yeah. <laughs> so don't believe that all these charter schools that that no. supposedly are secular are truly secular. Well, you could see why the you know why why the Christian right really dislikes. The public schools. What what should be, you know, in a democracy, what should be the crown jewel is that everybody gets an equal public education. Part of yes, the education, and yeah. it's not just the intellectual development; it's exposure to your society, your community, where there's a mixture of kids. This is really antithetical to mm-hmm. Christian conservatives yeah. because they, you know, they want to set up a a sort of their own narrative of history of science of what the country is about of politics and you can only do that when you have this controlled yeah. environment. And they're they're completely open about it. For example, Pat Robertson here uh, talking about the voucher issue, quote, they say vouchers would spell the end of public schools in America, to which we say, so what? You know, they, they don't yeah. care because no. that would be a great thing for them right. <laughs> if we undermined public education or uh, Jerry Falwell was always gave us great quotes on this issue back when he was still kicking. Uh, He said, I hope to live to see the day when, as in the early days of our country, there won't be any public schools. The churches will have taken them over again and Christians will be running them. What a happy day that will be. Well, luckily, he didn't live he to didn't see live that, that long. Uh-huh. But there Jokes are certainly people who are pushing for, for his vision, yeah. if you want to call it that, to happen. It's again, it's just it's the weakness of this worldview. Right. If your worldview cannot withstand any counter evidence, if if you can't really make it fairly in the free marketplace of ideas, you have to control the minds of your children. You have to isolate them uh, and put them in mental prisons to make sure that they end up believing everything you do. Mm-hmm. It's even the Bible has passages like this, like Second uh, Corinthians. Ten five, which says, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. My, every time I would criticize the, my, the decision of my parents to send me to the 
to our religious school, K, we went K through nine. They would say, "Well, you turned out okay. Look at you. You're, right, you know, right. in academia." And I would, you know, like we talked about before, I would always think of this as self-selection. I would have. I don't think if your parents are educated and decent parents, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, which school you go to. I stayed home and read books. That's right, why I'm right. where I am. I'm not this way because they, you know, because I had an extra hour per religion yeah. education I, per day. You know, you know, and I, I went to a Christian school too, and I got a good education. Give or take, I would have ended up pretty much the same if I had gone to a public school or a Christian school, only I probably wouldn't have been indoctrinated for nearly as long. We wouldn't be as angry if we wouldn't have gone to a religious education. That's true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Was it worth it, Mom? Yeah. They have an angry son. <laughs> All right. Well, perhaps it's time for something completely different. And now for something completely different. So let's uh, let's do a segment we haven't done in a while, the counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Today's counter-apologetics concerns the argument from evil, which is one of those arguments, one where the atheist takes up the burden of proof Hmm. and sets out to prove that God doesn't exist rather than just debunking uh, other proofs that are suggested for God. I got an email from somebody listening to my debate with mm-hmm. Cliff Connectly, who was wondering about one of the arguments that I used. I used a modified version of the argument from evil. And a couple of people commented on this, wondering why, why I used such an odd approach to that argument. Typically, the argument from evil is an argument – it's a deductive argument. It tries to argue that God's omnipotence, his righteousness, and the existence of suffering in the world – cannot possibly all coexist. Those things can't all work. The problem, and I think there's a lot of atheist philosophers who will admit that out there, not as many atheists who realize this, Mm -hmm. is that the traditional formulation of the problem of evil doesn't actually work. Uh, It's not valid. The problem is, is that this argument rests on the assumption that a righteous being would not allow suffering. Right. But what if morality actually requires that some amount of suffering be allowed for some particular purpose? If that is just a possibility, Mm -hmm. then the argument is not valid any longer and the argument from evil then fails. So typically the way people try to argue, well, what what could be a morally compelling reason to allow suffering? Maybe, for example, um, you need to allow some – minimal amount of suffering for us to be able to appreciate happiness. So we need to have these tough Michigan winters in order to appreciate just how lovely our Michigan summers are, which I think the objection to that is immediately obvious. If that's the case, why do they have to be so damn long? Why do they have to be so damn cold? And really, that's kind of the counter argument to that whole move. And how come we have to deal with construction in summer? (laughs) <laughs> to make you appreciate you know, smooth roads. Yeah. <laughs> An example that uh, one of my professors used in my theology class at, uh, at Aquinas was, you know, you let your child put their finger in the light socket to get a shock so that they learn not to do it again. If you just say to them, no, you'll get hurt, then maybe they'll, they'll keep trying it and they'll – but the problem with that, of course, is why do light sockets have to shock in the first place? Well, right? Okay, yes, sure, right? sure. So, so I think a lot of people don't really stake their ground on, on that particular argument. Much more often, you're going to find the free will defense. Yes. Allowing for the free will of agents to worship God, not as mindless automatons. Uh, for their love to be authentic, it has to be based on a free will choice. Mm-hmm. And that is the morally compelling reason uh, for God allowing suffering. And if that's the case, then God could allow quite a bit of suffering because it's all determined by us how much suffering exists in the world. That was why I used a weird, (laughs) different version of the argument from evil. I argued that um, God's omnipotence, his righteousness, and the suffering in hell could not all be squared away. Right. Because – Hell, right, is suffering in the extreme. It's the most extreme form uh, of suffering that you could imagine. And it can't be instructional suffering because once you're there, you're there. Exactly. Yeah. So those two objections that suffering is needed for happiness or to teach us something, those Mm -hmm. can't even come up 
if we're talking about uh, the existence of hell. And I also thought it was good because it, the way I formulated it counters the free will objection at the same time by saying, look, there are people, the saved in heaven, mm-hmm. who go on to obey. Right. But and presumably they have free will. Right. They just choose not to use it. Yes. So this proves that free will doesn't entail disobedience or sin. Yes. So the free will objection can't be used. And I said that not only of the saved in heaven, but this is also true of angelic hosts and other beings that God created. Then we got this email from a listener who was sharing a a possible challenge on this point. Uh, Yeah, this came to us from Stephen. He said, I think that generally most everyday Christians would agree that both the angels and Christians in heaven do possess free will. However, when talking to one of my Catholic friends, she refuted this example by saying that in heaven, there really is no free will due to something called the beatific vision. It goes on to explain that basically this is when God reveals himself in his full glory to a human or angel in such a way that they will be so awe-inspired and impressed or possibly hypnotized by his moral perfection that they would never again be free to use their will to sin. So in essence, in heaven, there is no free will. Right. So the beatific vision comes from Catholic uh, and Eastern Orthodox Mm -hmm. Christianity. This shows why there could never be sin in heaven. Right. The problem with this is it does so at the expense of the free will defense. Yes. So this doesn't actually counter the argument I proposed in any sort of way. It it actually makes it even stronger. Apparently now God is perfectly acceptable having mindless automatons love him with no choice but to obey. Uh, And therefore, you know, how 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 do we explain suffering then? Then he just creates people who have no choice but to sin and will suffer? This really doesn't preserve the free will defense, and so it doesn't solve the problem of evil. Enter William Lane Craig. Uh, Our old buddy. Yeah, William Lane Craig has an interesting solution to this. He's a a Protestant, but he also accepts this idea of the beatific vision because he thinks it can help him out of this. Because he didn't want to bother coming up with an explanation himself. Craig thinks that once we decide to accept Jesus, we've made that free will choice. And so it's okay if God seals that choice by revealing his presence to us uh, Mm -hmm. in a way where we wouldn't have any free will anymore. Because we initially had the free will, then uh, everything after that is okay. So basically you have free will till this one choice. Yeah. And then it's like, now it's, you know... And then once you die and go to heaven, God reveals himself. Right. Good job for that free will choice that you made, and now we're taking it away. You made the right decision. Thank you, God. Yeah. I'm so glad I'm here. Okay, well, that's human beings. What about the angels? He thinks this happened with the angels as well. He says, something like this may have already occurred with angelic beings, originally created uh, at an arm's length from God epistemically. They had time to choose either for or against God. Those who chose for God were then sealed with the beatific vision uh, so that no further fall is possible. And then those who chose not became the fallen angels and Satan and his minions. Of course, this doesn't say this anywhere in scripture or anything. This is just ad hoc, complete ad hoc. No reason to believe this except that it will somehow save his theology, he thinks. Now, ad hoc, I'm not up on my Latin. Ad hoc means pulled out of one's ass, right? Yes, yes. Okay, it's a a loose translation. Like a hock of a bull. (laughs) Yeah, like a ham hock. Yeah, Yeah, okay. A hypothesis or a belief that we adopt for no other reason than to save our our theory from refutation. Mm -hmm. But does this actually really save his position? I don't think so because still Craig would have to admit as he just did with this angels example. Right. There are some beings that have free will and nevertheless they use it to obey God of their own free will decision before God seals them right. with a beatific vision. That means if that's possible, God chooses to create beings who he knows will not choose to obey him, right. will sin, and that they are created for no other purpose then mm-hmm. uh, to be punished and destroyed in hell. Right. So really, this all this pushes this pushes the problem back one step, but it really doesn't resolve the issue. 
in case that doesn't work, Craig has a second option, which I think is even more delightful. It's always good to have a backup, just yeah. in case your one argument sucks. Yeah. He, he suggests that the doctrine of middle knowledge affords another viable option. Craig writes, one could hold that God, via his middle knowledge, knew exactly which persons, if saved and glorified in heaven, would freely persevere in grace, even though they would retain the freedom to sin. It's not that they have a different nature than others. It's just that this is how they would freely choose. God has chosen to create a world in which all the saved are precisely such persons. Hence, everyone in heaven will freely persevere. They will fall away. They could fall away, but they just won't. Interestingly, creating a world like this could involve God's having to put up with a lot of otherwise undesirable features of the world, such as vast amounts of natural and moral evil. Perhaps only in a world like that would all those who come freely to know God and his salvation be a person who would freely persevere in heaven. This view would have obvious relevance to the problem of evil. Notice all the words like could or perhaps, maybe. In other words, Craig has no argument why this must be the case. And he's even just given us the idea of of angels who didn't have to go through sin and suffering and everything. It's especially hard then even on Craig's own account. Why why should we accept this version of things? Basically, the way I see Craig's argument here is that he's saying that knowledge of sin – and salvation is somehow necessary for obedience. Right. That we we never could really obey until we actually went through all the suffering of of being separated from God and knew the anguish of sin and, and that fractured relationship with God that it creates. Mm-hmm. But this really isn't going to work as a defense either. First of all, if knowledge is the problem, why couldn't God just implant knowledge directly into the mind of the consequences of sin? Why would anybody have to actually live through exactly. a tormented world to actually experience this? God can just pull down the heavenly projector screen, right? put up on the screen, okay, you guys are going to have to make a choice. Uh, I want to show you real quickly what happens if you choose to disobey. Mm-hmm. Flash it on the screen, flames, death, genocide, Like volcanoes. a driver's ed movie, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> screen goes back up. Any questions? Yeah. And everybody right. makes their free will decision. Or, of course, he could just implant it directly in the brain via some sort of – He's an omnipotent creator, right? He could do any of these things. Yeah. If that's not satisfying, the only way you could argue that that doesn't work, I think the only option open to Craig is that perhaps this knowledge to to really be true knowledge of sin and suffering has to be knowledge by acquaintance. And such a knowledge uh, uh, would entail sin. Right. It could not exist apart from sinfulness. And if if somebody wanted to argue that, you should let them because then this shifts the whole problem of evil to now it's not an issue of uh, God allowing suffering. By that definition, God cannot be all-knowing right? because it means there's a certain class of knowledge, intimate knowledge of sin that God cannot possibly have. And then human beings have a privileged source of knowledge to which God doesn't have access to. We're better than God. One that's morally relevant knowledge too. Yeah. Yes. I like this argument. Yeah, so yeah. It's, there's no way to get out of this bind. This is just another theodicy like any other, and, mm-hmm. and they're all on their surface. It's pretty easy to point out how you cannot reconcile all of God's attributes with the world that we actually live in. So thank you, Steve, Yes, for that email. We hope it helps. Yeah. So uh, now we're going to try a completely new segment one that spotlights one of uh, Fletch's special areas of knowledge that we don't utilize him nearly enough for on this show, mythology. That's right. And actually the idea for this came from a professor of mine in college who after I told my story about becoming an atheist said, I always ask atheists which god it is they don't believe in. And I responded, I don't believe in any of them. So you haven't I, heard all of them yet. Yeah, exactly. I got more for you. That's true. <laughs> so I like to consider myself a polyatheist. Finding out more and more gods not to believe in. Exactly. We begin our journey today into polyatheism because there are just so many gods out there not worth believing in. 
This week we'll take a look at one of the Egyptian gods of creation, Atum. Atum first shows up in the 6th dynasty in the Old Kingdom of Egypt, and this is sometime around the year 2300 BCE, uh, in the city that will later be known by the Greeks as Heliopolis, the city of the sun, uh, near modern-day Cairo. In the beginning, Atum rose out of the primordial sea, Nu, it's the name of the sea, either in the form of or standing on a mound. Like a teenage boy finding himself alone at home, Atum's first act is one of self-pleasure. <laughs> While Yahweh used Kratio ex nihilo, creation from nothing, Atum created with his hands. Perhaps this is why he's sometimes referred to as Atum the finisher. Okay, so well, let me just clarify. Yes. Man is sitting on a rock in the middle of a primeval ocean. Yes. Has nothing to do, yep. so he starts jerking off. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, in one version of the story, Atum then consumes the product of his self-pleasure. Well, that's kind of gross. And then to make it even more awkward, simultaneously sneezes and spits it out. How embarrassing. From his nose is produced the air god Shu, and from his spit, Tefnut, the lion-headed goddess of moisture. To this day, we still pay homage to the birth of these gods when we sneeze and spit. Shu! Tefnut! Okay, shoe worked a little bit better, but... Where does Teflon come from, then? That's a good point. We don't know a whole lot about Atum as a father, but one thing we can figure out is that he was in favor of abstinence-only sex education. And we can tell this because as soon as as they had the chance, the first thing his kids did was go out and have sex. Of course, since there weren't a lot of options in this modestly populated world, Shu and Tefnut had sex with each other. And because this is mythology, anytime someone has sex, there's going to be at least one baby. Tefnut then gave birth to Geb and Nut, the god of earth and goddess of the sky, respectively. Geb and Nut are even more eager than their parents to start figuring out why their parts are different and seem to fit. And they're actually born in a coital embrace. A more responsible grandfather than a father, Atum sees this and orders Shu to pull the mating twins apart. Guys, stop it. Just masturbate like I did. (laughs) Exactly. Nothing bad happens that way. And thus the earth is separated from the sky by the air in between them. Uh, Ideological myth. Get it? Mm -hmm. Frequently in depictions of the two, Nut's back is arched away from Geb to form the canopy of the sky where Geb reaches desperately towards his sister-slash-wife, without using his hands. Uh, understand yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can actually see that in some hieroglyphics when they yeah. have Newt. She's uh, on the edge of the painting above the, uh, like forming the, the arch above the uh, depiction. Yes, yes. And, and clearly it's hard on Geb because he can't have oh, nuts. Oh, man. Uh, just keeps on coming. Again, since this is mythology, Geb and Nuts are due for some offspring. Their union produces the gods who eventually take center stage in Egyptian mythology, including Osiris, his sister wife Isis, his evil brother Set or Seth, and Set's sister slash wife Nephis, who is also Osiris's lover, one of, though not the only reason why Set and his brother have a difficult relationship, but we'll talk about that soap opera at some other time. Okay, my question is this. How is it that we could have a near-universal incest taboo that's like biologically programmed in us, yet almost all of these mythologies from the Bible, from ancient Egyptian Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mythology, other Near Eastern mythology, almost all of them claim we were all products of incestuous relationships. Right. Well, and part of that just comes out of the necessity of only having a few beings yeah. that I, exist. Yeah, maybe it's only just the logic Only somebody, a city slicker, it. would ask that question. Yeah, that's You've right. never really grown up in a rural area, <laughs> have you? And, Not and a lot of options. It's important to note that with the Egyptians in particular, incest was not okay for, for everybody. people, but it was okay for the royal family. Kept things in yeah. the royal bloodline. Keep things in the family. And... And, and this justified because the gods okay. did this, we can do it too. Okay. See? I See? got it. Okay. That makes, makes sense. Makes a little sense. Um, belief in Atum continues to this day in a surprising way. The Ben-Ben stone of Heliopolis, revered since ancient times as either the mound that Atum rose up from the primordial waters on, or as his solidified semen, or both, 
That's the fun part of myth. Uh, it is believed to have been the place where the first rays of the sun shone on Earth. It's also credited with the inspiration for the pyramid capstones and obelisks, which are in their own way symbols of Atum's phallus. The Ben-Ben stone, as it turns out, shows up again and again in some of the most absolutely insane conspiracy theories out there, <laughs> including my very favorite, which I'll, we'll post the link to, that includes Moses, the Ark of the Covenant, electromagnetic fields, the Great Deluge, Hitler, and a deep, deep misunderstanding of history, physics, mythology, biology, grammar, and many other fields of study. On the same website, by the way, there is a blog about the hidden Illuminati references in DuckTales the movie. <laughs> it's all so clear this now. This is a, a absolute treasure tro- trove. In short, though, the Ben Ben Stone was smuggled in the Ark of the Covenant when Moses and Akhenaten, who, by the way, didn't worship Atum, he worshipped uh, Amun. Amun. Um, th- when they when the Jews were exiled from Egypt, it was smuggled out in the Ark of the Covenant, which also because Convenient. it balanced the the electromagnetic fields of the Earth, it led to the falling of the walls of Jericho, and it's. This is amazing. You'll have wow. to have to read it. I'm glad Luke is following all this because I need a flowchart. <laughs> well, and as far as Atum's story goes, uh, his is a lot like many other creation gods of myth. He does some impressive creating, and then he kind of gets pushed to the background to make room for the younger, more dynamic generations of gods. But not quite ready to join the ranks of Buri, Apsu, and Uranus in the old gods' retirement community, Atum instead rides off into the sunset every day. During Egypt's new kingdom, he merged with the sun god Ra, or Ra, and became Atum-Ra, god of the evening sun. Far from the young man whose exploration of his body led to the creation of the world, Atum-Ra is depicted as an old man leaning on his staff. And it's kind of nice to see a god aging with a little bit of dignity, you know? Yeah. He's not holding on. Yeah. No, no. He's slipping away. Very gradually. I think we should start teaching this as an alternative scientific theory in the Absolutely, public schools. Absolutely, yeah. And you're also teaching sex ed at the same time. Excellent. Incest yes. strong, masturbation good, right? Right. And that's going to do it for us this week. Until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. Join in the discussion at our forum, doubtcast.forummotion.net. Oh, I just remembered something, Dave. Yes. The Podcast Awards uh, at podcastawards.org. The one that we won last year. The one that we won last year. Uh, they're now accepting nominations. So uh, if you don't mind helping us win a second year in a row, uh, go down, go to podcastawards.org and nominate us for Best Religion Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at slash doubtcast or zazzle.com slash doubtcast where you can buy some of our shirts. Um, you can also make a donation on our website. Thanks again to all of you who continue to make uh, very generous donations. Any donation is generous, and we appreciate it a great deal. Until next time, we'll be back with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Now, your Werner Herzog moment of despair. Enjoy. And nature here is vile and base. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic. I see it more full of obscenity. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and... 
growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in pain. Even the, the stars up here in the, in the sky look like a mess. Mm -hmm.